Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Michelle Min, MD. She's a part of rheumatologic dermatology. Uh, she's also in the Department of Dermatology at University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. So we're going to talk about various skin issues, rashes, etc., and uh, find out about our research and uh, and her work. So, Michelle, thank you for coming. But thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, if you would tell me about how did you get into dealing with skin? Were you like a aficionado of Dr. Pimple Popper online, or what got you into it? Hardly. You know, I actually didn't even know I wanted to do medicine until later in college. I thought I always wanted to be a researcher, so I always liked science, but I didn't know I wanted to become a physician specifically until I was doing a lot more bench research in college, and uh, I realized it really takes a special, unique person to deal with all the failures in the lab. It's a very slow process before you succeed. And I just have to say, I didn't have, I admit I didn't have the patience um, uh, so I realized I really missed interactions with people and I'd yeah. like to have, I, I wanted to work in a field where I could help people, but maybe a little bit more of an immediate gratification. So I, that's why I chose medicine. And then, you know, why skin? My, my father's actually a pastor and we went to this medical missionary trip in Haiti and you can do a lot with skin. You know, the, the organ is right there. You see it. You don't really need to rely on a test mm -hmm. to, to diagnose a patient and to help a patient. I thought that was really, really cool. So when I decided I wanted to do medicine and I had this experience of this medical missionary trip, I decided to, to focus on skin. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, life happened. I really met the right mentors, which I think is so critical to success. I got lucky. I, I met the right mentors and they got me interested in research and interested in rashes specifically and complex medical dermatology and really the, like the challenging cases. So that's how I got involved with uh, clinical research and room derm, uh, rheumatologic dermatology. 
You know, it'd be funny if you told people you're in this field because it was a rash decision, literally. So are you doing research or is it more clinical work or what does your day look like? Yeah, I'm primarily a clinician. I do do some research. Um, it's, you know, primarily when I'm seeing patients, I think of a question. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if anyone's looked into this. And then I'll, you know, I'll see what's out there in the literature. And if it's not been answered, you know, I'll answer it uh, based based on my patients. I have some experience in, you know, the, the big clinical trials working with pharmaceutical companies. I'm doing a little bit of that as well. But I'm primarily a clinician because I really enjoy um, seeing and, and treating patients. Mm, okay. So what are some of the, uh, I don't know, the most common or tricky types of skin conditions you're seeing now in clinic? So I think one of the trickiest conditions is actually dermatomyositis. It's a rare disorder, so not many people see it. Not many dermatologists or rheumatologists see a lot of it. And it can mimic a lot of other conditions. And it comes with many different internal um, symptoms as well. So it can be really confusing. And unfortunately, there's no slam dunk biopsy finding or a slam dunk uh, blood test to give you the diagnosis. So you really just have to be experienced at seeing a ton of it. So I see patients referred for quote unquote eczema or psoriasis or loops, and they take a look at them. And I'm like, that's not what you have. You have dermatomyositis. And it's really an important you know, condition to treat because it's associated with cancer in about a third of patients. What is it? Not, yeah. So dermatomyositis is an autoimmune skin condition. It can be associated with cancer, but not always. It can be associated with a quite devastating lung disease as well. And it has really specific clinical findings. So you just need to be experienced seeing it over and over. Because otherwise, you know, the facial features can look a lot like lupus. The hands can look a lot like eczema. The elbows and knees can look a lot like psoriasis. So it's, I think it's often misdiagnosed and probably underdiagnosed, but it's so critical to catch early because of that association with cancer and lung disease. Yeah, I think it's one of the most challenging diseases that that we see in room down. Hmm. Okay. Um, Do you ever deal with, uh, I don't know, like drug-induced rashes when people sure. take certain medications or, you know, what, what's the landscape of that looks like? Sure, all the time. I mean, a lot of our autoimmune skin conditions, um, they have no drug associations too, you know, drug triggers. So that definitely comes up. All right. So what, what's an example of um, some conditions that happen and do they, you know, yeah. most rashes go away even if they're drug induced or are there some that last forever, literally? Like, uh, what, what does it look like? Yeah, that's a great question. It really depends if you're lucky, you know, you take away the drug trigger. And I think in the most, most, you know, rashes that are caused by drugs, you take away the drug trigger. It might not be immediate, but after a couple of weeks, the rash will resolve. Sometimes it's more just like the drug triggered this underlying predisposition to getting a chronic rash, right? So you probably had some genetic position to getting it. You have something that triggers it. And in this, this case, a drug. And it, uh, it unfortunately won't go away because you were, you might've just, you know, eventually we're going to get it, but, uh, you know, you needed that kind of trigger. So it, it's not clear cut, but an example, you know, for rheumatologic dermatology is there's a type of lupus of, uh, of the skin actually that's associated with really common blood pressure medications, for example, or actually heartburn medications that you can just buy over the counter. So, you know, you know, we, we do see an association there. And a lot of these newer medications, I mean, medicine's really exciting right now, right? There's all these new drugs hitting the market. Um, and that's fantastic. 
but we don't fully understand some of the, the rarer side effects. And a lot of them have these rare rashes that, that could be associated with them. And then the other challenge is, you know, with clinical trials, if you look carefully, you'll see, you know, for example, oh, 6% of these patients had a rash, but they won't really go into detail about what kind of rash, mainly because it's not dermatologists that were running the clinical trials. So that rash could mean something like an acne-like rash, or it could be a full-blown, you know, you know, skin falling off type of rash. So it's challenging because um, a lot of these these newer drugs are coming out and we don't fully understand the, the drug rashes are associated. So again, are there skin conditions or rashes that there's nothing you can do? Or is there always something you can do to help somebody? I think there's always something you got you can do. I mean, it might not be the first thing that you try, right? So, you know, it, yeah. you know, but the challenging conditions are, are challenging for a reason, especially the rarer ones. Sometimes it's just a matter of trial and error and finding the, the combination, the cocktail, you know, that, that works. What about skin microbiome? Are you hearing... You know, practitioners looking at that very much, or they're just like, ah, whatever. Uh, it's a hot topic. No, it's a hot topic. It's not my area of expertise, but it's a really hot topic in research. Um, there's, you know, there's always articles about, you know, coming out about skin microbiome. I think eczema and psoriasis are probably the best examples of, um, you know, uh, emerging research with skin microbiome. But I have to say, it's not my area of expertise, but it's definitely a hot topic. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is, there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Are there new protocols? Like um, I saw one dermatologist had a special light. I don't know if it was UV. So when they look at the skin, normally with the eye, it looks one way with the special light. It looked very different, and they were able to see conditions that they couldn't see before. So, like, are there, are there any special tools like that you're using clinically that are newer, that really are getting you good results? Yeah. I actually think you might be referring to the Woods Lamp, which is a super old school um, technique that we've been using where, you know, what looks like subtle changes in this coloration can really light up. There are certain bacterial organisms that actually really light up with that lamp. Uh, but there are new, I mean, in terms of medications, that's constantly shifting. You know, like it's like every month there's a new medication in dermatology right now. I mean, dermatology is a really, a really exciting field to be in right now because of all the different drugs coming out. But in terms of devices, sure, there's always, ad, you know, advancements in lasers, for example. Um, I think one of the big devices that would really change how we, um, how we treat patients is the device called OCT. Um, it's, you know, in a simplified way, it's almost like an ultrasound of the skin. 
Um, so you may be able to diagnose without having to cut into the skin or, you know, do a more classic biopsy to see, for example, if you think there's a high likelihood of a skin cancer. So if there's, you know, let's say there's a bump on the on the face, it doesn't look super classic for a skin cancer. Patient doesn't, you know, really want to biopsy the face if you're not, you know, you don't have a high concern. And maybe this OCT device, for example, that that be a good example um, of a time that you could use this device to see if you you have higher concerns when you look that way. It's a non-invasive technique. I think that's probably one of the bigger advances that's coming into dermatology. That's still fairly new. Okay. Are you noticing any change in people in general? You know, it seems like a lot of people have a lot more anxiety and stress. Is that manifesting in people's skin in different ways? You mean post-COVID or you just mean like in life? <laughs> uh, both. But yeah, like recently in the past, you know, a year or two, are you seeing any change in people or is it, you know, a much slower thing over time that you're noticing changes or maybe you're not noticing anything? I don't know. I think a lot of the conditions that were around pre-COVID are here post-COVID. There is always this concern. It, it's, it's a common concern. If there's a new diagnosis, could it have been triggered by COVID vaccine or COVID infection? I think that's a really hard answer or hard question to answer because it's so prevalent, right? And then, you know, question of timing, you know, there are certain skin conditions that occur within a day of an exposure. I um, mean, there are other skin conditions that it's classic for them to occur weeks, maybe even months after an exposure. So people often ask me that. I think that that anxiety, whether it could be COVID vaccine or infection related, is still really prevalent. And we just don't know. Oh, but you're not seeing any new things that you haven't seen before. That We have, we have something called COVID toes. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was found to be associated with COVID. It looks like Hernio, uh, which is a, actually a room derm um, condition, it's a condition of these these really painful bumps on the uh, fingers or toes, usually triggered by the cold, and classically seen in patients with autoimmune skin conditions. We saw a lot of it during that the, the peak of COVID, for example, especially when the virus was doing stranger things. So there are specific rashes associated with COVID as well. Okay, but in general, you're not really seeing too much new. It's just kind of a continuation of what you've seen for years? I think so. Okay. If you ask someone else, maybe they would disagree with me, but I don't think so. I think a lot of the stuff that we are seeing now is stuff we saw before. Okay, yeah. That's what I wanted to know. Um, are you doing only clinical work? Or are you doing any research? And if so, what does the research look like? Yeah, I'm definitely doing some research as well. One of the papers we're actually working on is, is looking at hyaluronidase. It's actually used in a cosmetic setting, but we're using it to treat uh, patients with scleroderma that have trouble opening their mouth. So scleroderma is another autoimmune condition we see in, in room derm clinics uh, where the skin begins to progressively tighten. Really a terrible disease. You know, people right. can't, you know, the example is, you know, open a jar comfortably because their hands are affected. Now, scleroderma will, um, or systemic sclerosis, I should say, will, will also commonly involve the face. And there are patients that have trouble opening their mouths. So the reason we decided to study hyaluronidase for people that have trouble opening their mouths is we actually had a patient whose disease was pretty well-controlled. She had classic systemic sclerosis, and she had pretty well-controlled disease, but she was a singer. And she felt like the quality of her singing was affected. She liked performing on stage. And, you know, it was hard for her to 
to perform the way that she wanted to. And so the rheumatologist actually referred her to our rheumatologic dermatology clinic for treatment. And, you know, we thought, you know, mechanistically, the way hyaluronidase works is, it, you know, it breaks kind of like fibrotic tissue. Um, um, and in, in dermatology, it breaks down filler that we use to inject uh, in people's faces, for example. So we thought, hmm, it might help this woman. And so we injected around her mouth. And I mean, we were, we were shocked. Just after a single treatment, she was able to open her mouth wider. Um, and we kept injecting monthly. And so we decided to try it for a couple of patients. Listen, it's, you know, it's not a super prevalent problem. So we only had a handful of patients, but we were the first group to do it on an, an, uh, more than one patient. So we're working on publishing our findings there. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really cool, safe option. It's not like an immunosuppressant medication, which a lot of these patients are on immunosuppressants already. Um, and yeah, and this patient, I mean, she was thrilled. Like she, we almost had a hard time getting her to stop getting treated because she was saying she had it puppered her lips to kiss her husband in, in years. Uh, oh, wow. When she went to the yeah, when she went to the dentist, he would have a hard time cleaning her teeth. So like the basic cleaning, she said, would take over an hour, and now it was down to less than half an hour. She bit into a like a you know an apple, a big hamburger for the first time. She used to always have to cut it up in small pieces because she couldn't really open her mouth all the way. So uh, yeah, so that that's one example of a research project that's that's pretty much wrapped up and and we're writing up. But, uh, you know, the rheumatologic dermatology, not that many people, um, you know, studied it many years ago because these are rare disorders. So there's a lot of opportunity for research there. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, so if someone has a skin problem, um, you know, obviously they may call a dermatologist, but any helpful hints for people on how to navigate uh, the derm world? Because they're not experts. They don't know. I mean, what? You know, depending on which condition, what kind or flavor of a dermatologist should someone look for? That is a great question. Um, I think it's a misconception that all dermatologists do the same thing. And, mm. you know, just like I'm an expert in autoimmune skin condi um, conditions, like if, if I had a patient coming in to, you know, looking for a Dr. Pimple Popper, you know, they have this massive cyst and that they want it removed. I'm totally the wrong dermatologist to see. I have a colleague that can refer you to. I think... Right. You know, you know, we're dermatologists, we're a small group and we we know who the other dermatologists in our community are. We know who the experts in our field are, even beyond our, our local community. And so I think if you start with your local dermatologist, um, that that's a good first step. And if they know that, oh, this is outside of my comfort zone, they'll refer you to the the specialist because again, we're we're such a small we're a relatively small subspecialty, small specialty, so they'll they'll refer you um, to to the right folks. Okay, but is there any um, words or special designations that people not, you know? Like, what kind of dermatologists are there? Like you said, you're a room a room derm oh. rheumatologist. I didn't even know that existed. What are some other flavors of dermatologists that people don't even know exist that may help guide them? To be fair, I, I think I think we're a rare rare breed, um, but. I think overall, like there's there's big groupings, right? There's pediatric dermatologists. Then you have your cosmetic dermatologists, right? There are more of your your laser specialists, for example, your chemical peels, Botox fillers. I think they're the dermatologists most people think of when they're thinking of a dermatologist. Then you yeah. have your medical dermatologists, and then from there you have you know within medical dermatologists you have areas of um, special uh, specialization, right? So. Your general medical dermatologist, they're going to be very comfortable with um, looking at, you know, you know, routine eczema, 
acne, skin cancer, and, and most rashes. And then when you start kind of going into the, the rare things, then you may want to look for a subspecialist, just depending on the condition that you have. You know, there are specialists in blistering diseases, for example. Uh, there are specialists in eczema, allergic uh, dermatitis. Uh, that's a common um, uh, subspecialty. There's something called oncodermatology, right? Like, you know, lymphoma of the skin. You really want someone that has a lot of specialized training and, and uh, expertise in that, for example. Um, and then, of course, you have your surgical dermatologist. They, they're also a different group as well. You know, they, they're more comfortable doing these large, you know, cancer removals and, uh, you know, uh, or, or huge cysts like you might see on Dr. Pimple Popper, for example. So, so we do have these little niches. Um, and certainly, you know, you can read a bio on, online uh, of, a, of a provider, but if you're unsure, I think you start with your general dermatologist, your local dermatologist, and they'll refer you to the right places. And I'll say in general, if you're going to a large academic institution like like uh, like UC Irvine, um, they're more likely to have all these subspecialists too. That yeah, makes sense. What if um, you have a skin problem and you call around and, you know, the first dermatologist available is not for like six months? Or three months. That's a common problem. That's a really common problem. I mean, I think if you end up having, I mean, I think everyone should have a primary care, right? So if you start with your primary care physician and you have a good relationship with them and they agree you have something that really needs to be seen urgently, ask them to to reach out. That goes a long way. So I have a lot of local rheumatologists. They have my cell phone number and they'll just call me up and they'll tell me, hey, I have, you know, they'll tell me what's going on. This is, um, you know, what we've tried. I could really use your help here. I don't think the patient can wait for your next available anywhere you could see them sooner and we'll always get them in. Oh, that's good. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's probably a common frustration. That's why I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it comes up. I think every single day where people are, you know, they come in and they're like, I waited three months for this appointment. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm one of the newer faculty. I can't imagine the ones that have been around for 20, 30 years, they must have a large patient base and that their wait time's got to be even crazier. Are there, um, I thought about this, I don't know if it exists, but what if there was an app that had various filters and you can use your smartphone to take pictures of your skin and then, you know, transmit that to a dermatologist and have them at least give like an initial, well, I would consider this that or the other, you know, obviously still make an appointment, but I would consider this that or the other or you know, it doesn't look like what, what you're dealing with is very difficult. You know, here's what I'd suggest. Like, is anyone doing that? There are some mechanisms of that. So, you know, at least at UC Irvine, we have something called an e-consult. Now, it does have to come through the primary care physician, right? The right. primary care physician will take photos and may, you know, initiate an e-consult, which I think the wait time for hearing back for that is, is more just a matter of days. Uh, so, so there is a mechanism in place uh, for that, at least at UC Irvine. Um, and then, of course, there's telederm, right? That's something that COVID introduced, uh, or telemedicine, we call it telederm. I will say it's an imperfect vehicle, photographs, or or even video, just because the quality of photos can really vary. You know, lighting is really critical, and, you know, taking a look at you know, as a patient comes in with a full body rash, I need to be able to look up close. I need to take a step back and you know, see which areas are involved. So sometimes it's difficult to do uh, based on photographs. There, Listen, there are certain things super easy to do with, with a photograph and other things, especially a first time visit. It's just hard. Hmm. 
So even photographs and video, even with today's cameras that have high megapixels, it's still not uh, not clear in certain cases? Well, I think the challenge is, you know, especially in a large institution, they're going to want to use like, you know, encrypted or high privacy at, at vehicles. And so for UC Irvine, at least, there is a way to do it through Zoom. The problem with Zoom is that people, it's, it's, a, it's a good problem for like regular meetings, but have, there's all these like natural filters in, right, that smooth out your complexion, for example, or they'll like blur out a background. Um, right. So, if, you know, to, to guide someone to kind of undo all those filters, and I think there are some just natural filters in there. Um, but it's funny, I actually just had a patient uh, for an acne tele, um, telemed visit this past week. And she was like, do you see the the breakout I have on my face? And I was, I was, you know, kind of squinting and, and leaning into my camera. And I think it was the filter. I was like, your skin looks clear. So, you know, it, 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 there are some challenges there. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, someone would have to work on uh, maybe a custom camera filter. Yeah. Like, I know there's a device Probably. that lets you, lets you see like in, um, you know, infrared on iPhones, you could, plug it onto the device and uh i wonder if there would be such a device that like again um you know if you look in visible light or if you look in other lights have you seen that you can see things you can't normally see if you look in let's say uh infrared or if you look in uv right right that woods lamp we talked about it is an example of of a special like there's a special uh uh, light that that helps Mm -hmm. light things up there you know it was interesting during covid so there were people that were worried about, you know, skin cancers, for example. That's something that you really need to um, come in person because we have a special light that actually, it's almost like a you know, glorified magnifying glass in a way, but, but uh, you mm-hmm. know, that can look really close at a lesion. That's something that you couldn't do with just a regular camera, right? Um, and there was some thought of, you know, having patients buy a similar type of tool and then teach them how to take photographs using that that glorified magnifying glass, we call, we call it a dermatoscope. Uh, almost every dermatologist has one in their pocket. It helps us look closer at skin lesions to see if, you know, there are some concerning features, for example. So th- there was some thought, you know, oh, we could get a patient to to buy a, a cheaper version and, and upload photos. But I think there would be a lot of, you know, uh, there, would, there would be a lot of guidance required on, on using the devices. But it's, I mean, it's it's a valid point. Um, it's certainly, I think, something that could be improved upon. Yeah. What if, you know, you gave these uh, special scopes to primary care physicians that, you know, obviously they're going to refer, but if you get some primary cares that, that see a lot of this stuff, maybe they would be a good, uh, again, a referral source if they had the right equipment. Not to die. Um, no. Yeah. I think the use of technology that way definitely makes sense. So when we were in New York City, we actually worked with a hospital in a very remote part of, of New York State, in upstate New York. They didn't have many dermatologists in this area. Um, and so we actually worked with uh, trained nurses there who were comfortable using this dermatoscope and taking photos through the dermatoscope so they could take more targeted photos. And then we would do video visits with the patients and, you know, to, you know, to hear a little bit more about the background, about the, the skin lesion or the rash, for example. And we might even then go back to the nurse again and say, hey, can you actually take another close up photo of, of you know, the lesion on the left arm or, or whatever? So actually what you're mentioning, uh, it's, it was valid. And we did that pre-COVID, actually. So I think it's, it's, it's a good idea. You know, we could totally work with primary care physicians on that. Or in this scenario, you know, areas 
that are more rural, for example, they just don't have many dermatologists and there's an access issue there. Hmm. Okay. What do you see as the uh, the future of dermatology? What do you think it's going to look like? Future dermatology is really exciting. So first of all, I have to say, because I'm a room derm person, there's a lot more growing interest in room derm. I do think there's going to be more and more interdisciplinary clinics. Um, you know, providers of different specialties are communicating more, especially with the use of electronic medical records. And I also think that there's a lot more interest from pharmaceutical companies in studying rare and challenging diseases and coming up with these really safe targeted medications. This is already happening in dermatology and it's just exploding. So I think in the next few years, we're just going to have way more treatments um, that that are are specific to different diseases and, and therefore safe. Okay, that's excellent. Well, for listeners, you know, you probably don't need more business, but um, where do you serve? And then, uh, you know, like for someone to look for a dermatologist, are there good directories online or should just they just use Google? Like, um, you know, again, how can people find you and more about your work and your research? And then how can they find dermatology help in general? Right. So um, the National Academy, the AAD, that, that's the national organization for board-certified dermatologists. So you can certainly start there to find a dermatologist near you. And they have a big directory of all the board-certified dermatologists. And I think it's, it's, it is important for people to know that you know, there is a distinction between a board-certified dermatologist and, and another provider that practices dermatology. And then in terms of where I practice, I practice in UC Irvine. Uh, that's in Orange County, uh, just south of LA County. But yeah, I mean, you could, you could go to the UC Irvine website and, and find us there. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, uh, you know, being open and honest about, you know, what happens in the dermatology world. So thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.